1976, Tommy Ziegler was sent to Florida's death row for a quadruple murder. For the last 44 years, he has fought to prove his innocence, creating one of the longest appellate records ever. After asking for DNA testing since the early 1990s, is it possible the truth is in that blood evidence? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to the show. I want to just say up front that this is going to be a long and convoluted episode. This case has a lot of information in it. So if you are listening and you need to take a break because I'm rambling on and on, pause it, come back to it. It will always be here. I do want to thank Dominique Mix, the host of the currently on hiatus podcast, Death's Door for a lot of the research on this episode. Dominique is an attorney, so while she was able to fill in some details of the case, the thing she really helped with was more the legal analysis. But before we get started, I want to say very quickly that if you heard a political ad on this podcast, I did not approve it. Unless it was a generic ad saying, go vote, I said no to it. My hosting company, they said no to it. No one working with me said yes to those ads. What is happening is that some political ads are being miscategorized, likely because so many people opt out of political ads and they want them to get played. So they're playing on podcasts that have opted out of political ads because they are being categorized incorrectly. So regardless of who you think I would vote for, I did not approve of any political ads, and I never will. I suspect we may have more sneak in as we head into the U.S. elections in November, but I really hope not. But if you hear them, blame the campaign, not me. So let's go ahead and move on to the episode, which is inherently political since it does deal with the death penalty. But we are really not going to get into that side of things. If you're pro-death penalty or against the death penalty or somewhere kind of in the middle, not quite seeing it as black and white, that's fine. This episode is not exactly going to challenge your opinions here. What we are talking about with this episode is first, of course, the story of the case, what happened but then also how we got from point A to point B, and if maybe there's a point C beyond this in the appeals process. The three main sources for this episode were a book called Fatal Flaw by Philip Finch, which I highly recommend. There's also a Tampa Bay Times multi-part series called Blood and Truth. It has both a print component and a podcast, so I definitely Recommend also checking both of those out. And of course, the vast amounts of appellate documents was my third main source. Those came from Dominique. So this case starts in 1975 in central Florida. William Thomas Ziegler Jr. was known as Tommy, and he worked at the furniture store that his parents, Tom Sr. and Balula, owned in Winter Garden. 
So to map it in your mind a bit, this is about 14 or 15 miles west of Orlando. Tommy had grown up in Winter Garden, and as an adult, he coached youth football at the local elementary school, where Eunice Edwards was a teacher. Eunice had not grown up in the area, so this was the first time they met. They soon began dating, and they married in 1967 at the First Baptist Church. The two raised and bred Persian cats, and they also had plans to start a family. Eunice had either started seeing a fertility doctor, or she was making plans to towards the end of 1975. But before that, in the summer of 1975, Tommy's father had a stroke and he had to stop working at the store. So Eunice replaced him on the company's board, and Tommy took a more active role running the store. The business was doing well, as were some rental properties the family owned, so Eunice and Tommy were enjoying the benefits of that. They bought a new car for Eunice, they took out a loan to install a swimming pool in their backyard, and they were just generally enjoying a comfortable life. Around this same time, Tommy was helping out a friend of the family who was a Black business owner named Andrew James. It's important to note here that racial tensions were running high in Central Florida in the mid-1970s. It was only four years before this, in 1975, that the local sheriff was literally a member of the KKK. Now, Ziegler Furniture was actually known for not operating their business on racist principles like surrounding business owners. A lot of places would not extend credit to people of color, or if they did, they charged ridiculously high interest rates. Ziegler Furniture was the first store in town to allow everyone to buy on payment plans. So the Ziegler family friend, Andrew James, he owned Brown's Bar, which was pretty close to where Disney World had been expanding to at the time. This made the property much more valuable than it had been before, and certainly worth more than when the family opened it in the 1940s. But more valuable than the property was the liquor license they held. At the time, Florida only allowed a limited number of liquor licenses for any given area, and it was dependent on the population in that area. So you couldn't just open a liquor store or a bar just because you wanted to. The liquor licenses were pretty much all taken, so you either had to buy an existing business that had a license or wait for someone else to go out of business that would then open up a new liquor license. As you can imagine, it meant there was a lot of competition. And Andrew James, running his family's bar that they owned for 30 years, he had a license. And it didn't look like his bar was going out of business anytime soon. So the other way to get a license would be to force a business to go under or have their license taken away from them. So an accusation was made against Andrew claiming that he sold marijuana from his bar. 
good character is actually a legal requirement for having a liquor license. So they were challenging his legal right to retain it. Maurice Paul was a local attorney and judge. At some point, he represented the Florida Alcohol and Beverage Commission. They were essentially the gatekeepers for these coveted liquor licenses. And Judge Paul was on the side of shutting Andrew down. And he testified as a character witness for the agent Andrew allegedly sold the pot to. Now, Tommy Ziegler, he went to court on Andrew's side, testifying to his good character, that very vague requirement in the law. Not only that, Tommy Ziegler hired a lawyer to represent Andrew in court. Andrew won. He kept his bar, and he kept his liquor license. So this was not just a stroll through Florida liquor law history, just for the fun of it. This is going to come back up later. And this wasn't the only thing Tommy did that stirred up some trouble for him. Loan sharks started extending credit to migrant workers who were mostly Black. This credit was so that they could buy food, so that they could get groceries. The annual interest rate on these credit accounts was 520%, just so people can buy groceries. Tommy believed there were police officers involved in this loan sharking scheme, and he believed that might be why they're not shutting it down. He was also concerned about a local hotel that was pretty much just being used for illegal activities like drug use and drug sales. Tommy tried to get the local police to do something about it, and when they wouldn't, he went over their heads. He called the Hotel and Restaurant Commission Inspector. This is a state-level position, so the inspector came in and shut the place down. Basically, if Tommy saw something he thought wasn't right or wasn't just, he refused to stay quiet about it. And it's interesting to read about what he did in comparison with how people who knew him described him. He was and is a fairly quiet man. He's not one to show a lot of emotion. Yet he seemed to feel very passionately about having a safe community and protecting those who were vulnerable within the system. So it's a pretty good reminder that everyone shows emotion differently, and it's what people do that is the most telling of their character. That said, what comes next if Tommy did do this really erases any of the good things he could have possibly done in his life. It was the Christmas of 1975, a few months after the court ruling over the liquor license, and Eunice's parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards, came to Florida to visit for Christmas. They lived in Georgia. There are two stories about the purpose of this visit. According to Tommy, this was just a normal Christmas visit. But Eunice's brother, Perry, later said that the parents were actually in Florida to pack Eunice up and take her home to Georgia. 
she was leaving Tommy after learning that Tommy was gay or bisexual, and she learned it because she caught him having an affair with a man. There really isn't anything to back up what Eunice's brother said. If it was true that Perry Sr. and Virginia went to Florida to pack Eunice up and take her home, they were pretty tight-lipped about it and pretty much didn't tell anyone that's what they were doing. As for Tommy being gay, there is a lot of talk about there being a rumor that was going around, but it's not clear how widespread it was. It seems to me that a lot of people didn't even know about the rumor until after Perry Jr. had said it. There have been no men who've come forward about it, claiming they had an affair with Tommy. There is a close family friend of the Ziegler's who is gay, and he has said he had no indication or knowledge that Tommy was. And Tommy denies it. I personally think that, to some degree, Tommy fit a 1975 stereotype of what a gay man would be like. He was quiet, he was slight in build, and, I mean, his number one passion in life was raising cats. So when the rumor was passed around, I think some people may have nodded and been like, you know, I could see it. And then they would take the same rumor and pass it along, even though there wasn't a lot behind it. As far as I can tell, the only two people who ever claimed they heard about Tommy being gay from Eunice herself was her brother Perry, and then also her hairdresser said that Eunice had confided this in her. But regardless of why they were there to pack Eunice up or just for a holiday visit, Perry and Virginia were in Winter Garden on Christmas Eve. Tommy spent his day working in the store, and Perry and Virginia were supposed to come by to pick out a new recliner as their Christmas gift. But something came up, and they couldn't get there before the store closed. So when Tommy went home after closing the store up around dinner time, Eunice and her parents decided they would just go back to the store to pick out the recliner after hours and then meet Tommy's mother for Christmas Eve services. So Eunice and her parents left the house around 7 p.m. According to Tommy, his plans were to do some last-minute deliveries after hours and then meet Eunice for a Christmas party later on that they were attending after the church service. But Tommy and Eunice never made it to the party. At 9.20 p.m., Tommy called the house of a municipal judge where the party was being held. On the call, he pleaded for help at the furniture store because he had been shot. Now, it may seem odd that his call was to the party and not the police, but Tommy knew the guest list of that party included several police officers. And in his state of being shot, he likely thought of Ted's number first. Some of the officers at the party rushed to the store. Tommy unlocked the front door using what appeared to be the last of his strength because he was then carried to a police car and driven to the hospital. He was in a serious condition, 
after having been shot in the abdomen and needing surgery. He said that a man named Charlie Mays had shot him. Tommy didn't say anything about Eunice or her condition or his in-laws or anyone else. So some police officers went to the Ziegler home to check on things there, but they didn't find anyone home. But at the store, the officers found that Tommy was not the only person who had been shot. They found 52-year-old Virginia Edwards' body on the showroom floor behind some furniture. So if you walked in the front door and looked to your left, that is where her body was found. She had clearly been shot while taking cover. One bullet had even gone through her finger, indicating that she had put her hands up in a defensive position. She had been hit in the waist, but the fatal shot was to her head. 72-year-old Reverend Perry Edwards was found lying on a strip between the showroom and the stockroom in the back, near the rolls of linoleum flooring. There was knocked-over furniture, indicating there had been a struggle. Perry had also been hit with the metal crank used to unroll the linoleum, and he had also been shot. About 15 feet from Perry was the body of 35-year-old Charlie Mays. Charlie was a customer of Ziegler Furniture, and he was the man Tommy said shot him. Yet here he was, having been shot to death himself. Charlie had apparently been alive and on his feet after at least some of the shootings because he had dried blood on the bottom of his shoes. He had been shot twice, once in the back and once in the chest. And the crank that was used to hit Perry had also apparently been used to hit Charlie but he was also found with the crank in his hand. Also near Charlie's body was a cash box, and his pants pockets had been stuffed with cash and receipts. His pants had been unbuttoned and partially pulled down, a fact that has been painted in a variety of different ways, but can probably just be explained by the fact that he was in a struggle, he was in a fight, and weird things can happen in struggles. The fourth body was 32-year-old Eunice Ziegler. She was found in the doorway of the store's little kitchenette break room area. This doorway cannot be seen from the front of the store. Eunice was found shot in the back of her head. She was the only victim who seemed to have been in a relaxed state when they were shot. We have Perry and Charlie appearing to have been in a fight with someone, possibly each other. Virginia was found taking cover, but Eunice was found with her hand in her coat pocket, and her hand was around a tissue. So it seems pretty obvious that Eunice did not expect to be shot, and she was shot first. There were five guns total found at the scene, 
One gun was next to Perry's body, and four more were near Charlie's body. So at first glance, this looked like a robbery gone wrong, where Charlie Mays went to the store after hours, and he was surprised with people already being there, or they showed up while he was there. Since he and Perry were both hit with the crank, but it was found in Charlie's hand, it's possible Perry used it to defend himself, and then Charlie, who was nearly 40 years younger, disarmed Perry, and when the older man was down, shot him, and then he was shot with the crank in his hand. And at some point after his wife and in-laws were shot and killed, Tommy arrived at the store and he was ambushed. So an early question that would need to be answered is if Charlie was the robber and he was the one who killed everyone else, who killed him? Was it possible there were more people at the scene that night? Because there were rings that Eunice normally wore that were missing, as well as several hundred dollars from the business. But the police were going to hear from witnesses that made them think that this entire thing was staged. So we are about to get to the most complicated part of telling this particular story. What happened that night, leading up to the shootings and after, has been told by multiple people in multiple ways. I created a little spreadsheet for myself to organize all the statements into individual timelines to see where they line up and try to make some sense of them. And I can tell you, they don't make sense. They contradict way, way, way too much for any of them to be completely true. So the easiest way to present this is to not overlay the various statements into one massive timeline. Like I said, they are so contradictory that wouldn't work. This time we are going to have to walk through everyone's timeline separately, and I will point out the spots where people overlap and where they conflict. So let's start with 58-year-old Edward Williams, who showed up at the police department a little after midnight, less than three hours after Tommy's call for help. Edward's truck was found at the furniture store. It was parked in the back by the loading dock. So obviously, police already knew they were going to want to hear whatever this man had to say. Edward had known the Ziegler family for many years. He was a carpenter who the family would hire from time to time. He was close enough with the family that Tommy had recently loaned him money for a deposit on another apartment. According to Edward, on the night of the murders, he was supposed to meet with Tommy at 7.30 at Tommy's house. The plan was for the two of them to go to the store in Edward's truck, pick up a few things to do some last-minute deliveries. When Edward got to Tommy's house, he was about 10 minutes late and Tommy wasn't there. But the garage was open and the light was on, and Tommy had left a note on the front door saying that he would be back soon. 
Edward waited an additional 10 minutes before Tommy arrived at the house, so this would put us at about 7.50 at this point. Tommy was in a friend's car, and he had two men with him who Edward didn't know. Tommy asked Edward if he could wait around another 10 minutes, and then he left again with these men. While waiting on Tommy to come back, Edward saw a couple pull into the driveway before backing out and leaving again. This was very likely police chief Don Fickey and his wife. They confirmed that they were driving around looking for Tommy and Eunice that night because they were supposed to drive to that party together and the Zigglers never showed up. But here's where it's confusing. Edward's timeline would put this around 8 o'clock, and the Fickies did say they drove to the Ziggler home a little bit after 8, but that there were no cars there. They went back around 8.35, and this time, they did see a truck that matched Edward's truck. Don Fickey went up to the front door to knock on it, and he said he saw a man matching Edward's description sitting inside that truck. Edward does not mention Don going up to the door and knocking on it at all. So in summary, Ed saw Don at the 8 o'clock drive-by, but Don didn't see Edward. And then Don sees Edward at 8.35 when Edward wasn't even there at all. So I think you can already see that this is the beginning of a very confusing case. But we're going to stick with Edward's timeline as he presented it a little bit longer. Edward said that Tommy eventually returned to the house. He parked the car he was driving in the garage, washed his hands in the utility sink in the garage, and then he wiped down the car. As Tommy climbed into Edward's truck, Edward noticed a stain on Tommy's pants that he thought could have been blood. They pulled out of Tommy's driveway around 8.25, for the less than 10-minute drive to the furniture store. Now, let's go back to Don Fickey for one minute, because he and his wife did a third drive-by of the Ziegler home on their way to the party, and this was at 8.45. At this point, they report they did see the car Tommy was driving in the garage, but they didn't see any other vehicles there. So at this point in the timeline, it's actually lining up. But anyway, back to Edward and Tommy. They get to the furniture store, and Edward said he pulled to the back of the store where they were going to load the furniture for these deliveries. Tommy had to unlock the gate because the entire area was secured with a six-foot chain-link fence. Edward pulled in and backed up to the loading door while Tommy went into the furniture store. There's a little discrepancy at this point whether he went through the back entrance or he went around to the front again and went in that way. Anyway, when Edward walked in the back entrance and he started going down the dark hallway, he said that Tommy turned on him, pointing a gun. Edward then heard three clicks. Either the gun jammed or it was unloaded because either way it didn't fire. Edward took this as a sign that he should get out of there, so he ran for it. He was in the back parking lot, and Tommy came out and said something like he didn't realize it was Edward behind him, 
which Edward realized didn't make any sense because who else would Tommy think was coming in the door at that point? But Tommy apologized, and he handed the gun to Edward while saying something about not wanting Edward to frame him. Then he asked him to come back inside. Edward took the gun, but he wasn't about to follow Tommy anywhere. So he took off running, and he climbed the fence to get out of the parking lot since the gate had been closed behind him. He ran across the street to a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, and when in there, he asked to use the phone. Edward puts this at 8.40 p.m. He said he tried to call the police, but the phone number he was given was the wrong number, so he decided to just go. So he left the store, he bumped into some friends he knew, and he had them drive him to his other car. He used that car to go to Orlando for the night. Edward came forward to the police hours later when he realized what happened at the store. It may not have just been his desire to do the right thing. He probably realized that his truck was now at the scene of a homicide, and he might as well get his story out to the police first. And that's exactly what happened. He got the story in there first, and Edward had one thing that backed up his story. He had the gun Tommy had, according to him, given him after trying to shoot him with it. Ballistics tests would match it to the bullets that killed Perry and Virginia, and the gun was registered to Tommy. Okay, so let's make another little mental note here. There were several guns recovered in this case. There were the five at the scene. There's the one Edward showed up with. Some of them were registered to Tommy. Some of them were not. The guns that had killed Eunice, her parents, and Charlie Mays, it wasn't one gun. Multiple guns were used. 30 rounds had been fired. It looked more like a gunfight than anything else. And this would be a point that keeps coming up again and again as this scene is analyzed for the possibility that one person did this or that multiple people did this. So we are at the end of Edward's story. The second timeline we need to follow is more of a sequence of events. This is from 26-year-old Felton Thomas. He came forward around 6 a.m. the next morning. Felton's name was originally recorded and reported as Robert Foster in at least one official police document and in the media. The official story over this changing name is that Robert Foster was a typo and that it was always Felton Thomas. It was a typo that happened multiple times, and of course, it's not a small error to put down the entirely wrong name for a witness, so obviously it is going to come up later. So we're going to go ahead with Felton Thomas. Felton said he went to the furniture store with Charlie Mays. He told the police that they were there to pick up a television. Charlie had been at the store earlier that day with his wife to order some new flooring. And Charlie's wife said that Tommy told him to go back that evening while he was going to be there doing these deliveries, and he could buy a new television as a Christmas surprise for the family. 
1975 televisions were pretty heavy and bulky, so bringing a friend along made sense. Felton, though, was not really sure on the times of what happened, aside from the fact that he knew Charlie was supposed to pick up the TV at around 7.30 at the store. So everything after this point is just an approximation based on the idea that they would have gotten to the store around 7.30. And it even seems like the police used Edward Williams' timeline a little bit to get a little bit closer of approximations for Felton. So Charlie and Felton would have arrived at the furniture store roughly at 7.30, and Tommy was not there when they got there. He said they waited around about five minutes before Tommy showed up. When Tommy got there, he said he did not have the keys to get into the store, and they were going to have to wait for someone to bring him the keys. In the meantime, while they waited, Tommy suggested that they drive out to a nearby orange grove to fire some of his guns, which they did. Then they drove back to the store. When they got back to the store, no one had shown up with the keys to let them in. Felton claimed that Tommy then asked him to go to the power switch to turn off the power in the store, which I assume is so that they wouldn't trip an alarm. So Felton went and did this, and then Tommy suggested they use a brick or something and throw it through the window to break in. But Charlie thought this was odd, that the owner of the store was trying to break into it, and he didn't think it was a very good idea. So Tommy said, okay, that's fine. They would just go to his house to pick up the extra set of keys, which is what they did. And that would make Felton and Charlie, the two men Edward saw, arrive there with Tommy. According to Edward, this would have been around 7.50. So if we're placing this on a timeline, from 7.35 until 7.50, Tommy got to the store without his keys, went to shoot guns at an orange grove, drove back to the store to have Felton cut the power, then made the drive back to his house to get the keys. All of that in 15 minutes. So that's the story, and it's frankly impossible. But if we decide Edward Williams' timeline is wrong, things do change. Don Fickey said he saw Edward waiting at the house at 8.35, not 8 o'clock. If this is the correct timeline and Edward was off by a half an hour, then Tommy, Charlie, and Felton actually had more like 50 minutes for everything to have occurred, if it occurred at all, but at least it's possible. But let's keep going with Felton's sequence of events. He said that when Tommy got the keys at the house, he also grabbed more bullets for the guns. As they all drove back to the store, Tommy asked Charlie to reload the guns for him. For Felton, this was just the last straw on a weird night with guns and orange groves and breaking in and now more bullets. And so when they got to the store, he left, and he left Charlie behind. He would have left on foot since he drove there in Charlie's van, and Charlie's van was found at the scene. It was parked outside the fenced area in the back. 
So that's as far as Felton Thomas can get us with his story. This seems like a good time to go into the third story of the night. Or I guess it's the fourth if we count Don Ficky. So the fourth story of the night, what Tommy Ziegler said happened. Not surprisingly, he denied pretty much everything Edward and Felton said. Tommy said that after Eunice went to the furniture store with her parents, he stayed home because he had plans to meet with Edward Williams at his house at 7 p.m. to do the last-minute deliveries. This is 30 minutes before Edward claimed they were set to meet. Edward was late, so Tommy put a note on the door saying he would be back soon, and he started to head to the store to pick up a bottle of bourbon for the Christmas party he was attending. But as he was on his way to the store, he realized he didn't actually have the time to get to the store, get back home, get the deliveries done, and then get to the party on time. So he was partway to the store to buy the bourbon when he decided to turn around and go back home. When Tommy got there, Edward was waiting. They went to the furniture store, arriving probably any time between 7.15 and 7.30. Because he and Edward were doing those deliveries, they went to the back of the store. Tommy said he did lock the fence after Edward pulled his truck in, but that was normal policy and procedure to do that whenever they opened up the back of the store. It was just basic security. Tommy went into the store through the back door, but Edward didn't follow him as far as he knew. The last time he saw Edward, Edward was backing his truck up to the loading area. Tommy tried to turn on the lights in the back hallway of the store, but they didn't go on, so he went to another switch nearby and tried that, but it was still dark. He wasn't sure what was going on, so he walked down the hallway towards the dark showroom when someone hit him. He had not seen them coming, so he had no time to protect himself. His glasses went flying, which made things really difficult because it was already dark. Tommy could hardly see without his glasses, and now he had also been hit on the head. So he couldn't see, and he was disoriented, but he was armed, which was not unusual for Tommy. So he pulled out his gun and fired a shot, but he said the gun jammed. So then he threw the gun at the attacker, and he managed to get himself to where he had a second gun in the store, and he grabbed that, and he may have fired that into the dark. He actually didn't remember 100% if he fired it or not, but the gun was knocked out of his hand and he was shot in the abdomen. Lying on the floor and on the brink of unconsciousness, Tommy heard someone say that Mays was shot and they had to get rid of him. Tommy did not know who the people talking were. Around 9.20 p.m., Tommy regained consciousness and dug a spare pair of glasses out of his desk. 
His eyesight was 2,400, like I said. So he had to grab these glasses so he could then get to the phone and dial it for help. He called the party. He said he was shot. And people rushed to the scene. They got Tommy to the car, and they raced off to the hospital. By 9.23, Tommy was at the hospital. The reason this could happen so very quickly is because all of these points the house where the party was, the store, and the hospital were all in about a mile of each other. So this is what happened, according to Tommy. But even more than that, he denied other parts of the story. He denied telling Charlie to come back after hours. He had no idea who Felton Thomas was. He had never met him before. Because Robert Foster's name was being attached to the story in the media, it was three weeks before this was cleared up. It's possible it was three weeks before Tommy had ever heard of Felton Thomas, according to him. The story about not having the keys, shooting the guns at the Grove, coming back to break in, going to get the keys at his house, all of that, Tommy said all of that was a lie. According to Tommy, he didn't know his wife and in-laws were even dead in the store that night. He thought they had already left and gone to the church. But this is contradicted by yet another witness. A man named Thomas Hale, who did know the family, said he saw Tommy and Eunice together on Christmas Eve. At 7.15, their car passed his and headed in the direction of the furniture store. Tommy was driving, and Eunice was in the front seat. We will get more into this witness later, but I think it's pretty obvious why this is a nightmare of a timeline to build out. We have Tommy putting things 30 minutes before Edward, who puts things at least 30 minutes before Chief Don Ficky, and there are even more witnesses that we will get to later. But we do have one fixed point on our timeline that is not dependent on a witness. A bullet hit a clock in the store. I mean, like, straight out of an Agatha Christie book. It stopped the clock at 7.24. That is the time of at least some of the shooting. According to Tommy's timeline, this does fit. He walked into the store, and he was attacked around that time. But according to Edward and Felton, Tommy was up and driving around well after this. The witness statements are not the only things that made the police suspect and question Tommy's story. Tommy's gun holster was found. It had landed in a spot of blood that was from Charlie and Perry but the holster had very little blood transfer on it, meaning it landed there after the shooting and after the blood had dried quite a bit, at least 15 minutes. Had it fallen there when Tommy was attacked? Why was it already dry? Additionally, there was blood in places you wouldn't expect it. There wasn't blood in places you thought it would be. And where things were found didn't necessarily match with Tommy's story of where he was attacked and where he was shot. There were also footprints left by a shoe with a rippled sole that the police believed matched the shoes Tommy was wearing that night. 
This match would be disputed, and it was likely not a proper match, but it is what they were working with at this point in the investigation. So the theory of the crime that developed very early on was that Tommy Ziegler had set this whole thing up to look like a robbery gone wrong. Tommy had killed his family and then lured Charlie Mays and Edward Williams to the scene so that they could die in some faked shootout. He had Felton and Charlie handle the guns and the ammunition so that they would put their fingerprints all over everything. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense since the guns were wiped clean, but this is the story we're being given. The theory continues that Tommy didn't count on Charlie bringing Felton along or his gun jamming when he tried to kill Edward. So now he has two witnesses out there. So his plan really didn't work entirely, but Tommy still managed to get Edward to take one of the murder weapons that he could later be caught with. And then, according to investigators, Tommy shot himself right before he called for help to make it look like he had also been attacked in a shootout. There was a trail of blood from the phone to the door, which led the lead investigator, Donald Fry, to conclude that Tommy must have shot himself either right before or right after he called for help when he knew they would get there in time to save him. Then he went to the door to wait for that help. And while Donald Fry is selling the other investigators on his theory, Tommy was in the hospital, unaware that the investigation was moving towards him. He was on pain medication following a surgery when the police came in with a paper for him to sign. It said, I, Thomas Ziegler of Winter Garden, Florida, do knowingly and willingly give Donald Ficke and Detective Fry permission to search my home in an attempt to aid their investigation into the shooting that took place at blah, blah, blah. So the nurse had to wake Tommy up while he was dozing after surgery and read this paper to him before he agreed to sign it. Being under the influence of narcotic pain medication, Tommy may not have met the legal requirement in regards to waiving his Fourth Amendment rights. A waiver of rights needs to be, quote, free and intelligent. There cannot be coercion, and the person has to understand what the waiver means. Tommy was not only on pain medication at the time, he had also had the paper read to him by a nurse. There was no officer sitting down and explaining to him what this consent meant or that he had a right to refuse it. But regardless, the search of his home happened. The police reported that they found stains that they described as blood-like. Some of it was on a towel, some were smears on the car that was in the garage, which is the one Edward saw Tommy drive home with that night. The smears were on the driver's side headrest, on the inside door handle, on the driver's side door, and there was some on some tissue. The tests on this supposed blood evidence ended up being inconclusive. Now, the investigators also searched the furniture store as it was a crime scene, 
and they found evidence that Tommy had very recently taken out two life insurance policies on Eunice, totaling a half a million dollars. This was 1975, so it would be more like $2.4 million in today's money. This, they thought, was the motive. Put together with what Perry said about Tommy being gay and Eunice being about to leave him, it looked like money may have been the motive. Tommy could end up losing half of the couple's wealth in a divorce, or he could keep all of it plus get half a million dollars in life insurance. There was still a question about Perry and Virginia's murders. Were they part of the plan? Detective Fry said later that he believed Perry and Virginia knew too much, and if Eunice was killed, they would be the first ones pointing the finger at Tommy. So, of course, they had to be killed as well if he hoped to get away with this. The other theory that has been put out is that Perry and Virginia walked in on the murder scene, and Tommy had no choice but to eliminate them as witnesses. So the state has their motive, but we have an issue here with the search of the furniture store that uncovered the life insurance policy. The police did not have a warrant or consent to search Ziegler Furniture. They were using an exemption of the Fourth Amendment of emergency circumstances when they first entered it. Once there, they believed they had a crime scene exemption, which allowed them to search the scene. And in this case, they thought that this exemption should extend to the filing cabinets as they searched business records and found the insurance policy. However, two years after these murders, in early 1978, the Supreme Court ruled on a similar case, Mincy v. Arizona, and it did not justify this type of search. This was a similar situation, that the officers entered an apartment in an emergency circumstance. After they assessed the situation, the responding officers stopped and left the apartment, but homicide detectives came a few minutes later and they began a four-day search without a warrant. The evidence in that case was allowed at trial, and the man was convicted. He appealed until it made it to the Supreme Court. They ruled that the officers may only search a crime scene in the emergency situation to deal with the emergency. Once that's done, they need to get a warrant to do anything else. And I think it would be a stretch for anyone to argue that searching the Ziegler furniture filing cabinets was necessary to deal with the emergency. There was no one with a gun hiding in a file folder. Now, this ruling happened two years after Tommy's case. Had it happened before, under this ruling, once the furniture store was secure, they would have had to get a warrant to get into those filing cabinets. The life insurance policy would not have been allowed in court. 
If it was in plain sight during their initial emergency entry of the building, like someone left it out on the desk, that would be okay. That would be probable cause to maybe even search the business records more with a warrant. But a homicide occurring at a business is not enough to justify looking in their filing cabinets as of 1978. But again, this is the tail end of 1975. And on December 29, 1975, the police showed up at Tommy Ziegler's hospital room and they placed him under arrest just five days after the murders. And it was very quickly announced that this would be a death penalty case. Okay, so we now have most of the information the state would go ahead to present at trial. The actual trial transcript is something like 2,500 to 3,000 pages. So we are just hitting the highlights as reported in the Orlando Sentinel at the time and also the book Fatal Flaw. Now, the first issue with the trial was the judge. If you remember Maurice Paul, the attorney for the liquor board at the beginning of this episode, like an hour ago, this is the person who Tommy opposed in a case trying to get that liquor license taken away. Well, he ended up becoming the judge of Tommy's death penalty murder case. And not only that, but the attorney that Tommy had hired for his friend was also the one representing him now. Judge Paul was asked to recuse himself, and he would not. A judge is just going to have overlaps with attorneys all the time, and those aren't necessarily conflicts of interest or something that keeps them from being able to be unbiased in the case. So there's really no reason just at the onset to say Judge Paul was not going to be fair. But then he did a whole lot of things that seemed very unfair. So the trial date was getting closer, and the defense kept asking for them to delay it. They needed more time. There was a lot of evidence to go over, and the state had withheld a lot of it until shortly before the trial. And then they dumped a whole bunch on the defense at once, really more than they could go over in the amount of time they had. And this was a death penalty case. There was a lot of blood evidence in it. There was a lot of ballistics. There were a lot of contradictory witnesses. This was a lot to go over, and it was a lot at stake. A man's life was at stake. But Judge Paul refused to delay the trial. The defense still had evidence out at the lab being tested when the trial started in June 1976, six months after the murders. Honestly, innocent or guilty, it's hard to argue that Tommy Ziegler had a fair shot in this trial. The state didn't seem to care if they won by the evidence or because they played games with the defense. They were going to win. Now, the prosecution opened with the theory of the crime, which we've already gone over. They mentioned that Eunice was the target and the $500,000 life insurance policy was the motive. The defense countered by showing Tommy as a loving family man and someone who was wealthy enough that this half-a-million-dollar life insurance policy wasn't excessive and it wasn't worth killing for. 
Tommy had met with a financial planner who was the one who advised he take out these policies, and Eunice knew about them. The defense theory of the crime was that Charlie Mays and others working with him went to the store to rob it, and they didn't anticipate Eunice and her parents being there after hours. The prosecution took nine and a half days to present their case. The first witnesses were a string of investigators and analysts and forensic scientists who were establishing chain of custody for various items of evidence. These were multiple witnesses who were called to discuss a few pieces of evidence. And as I was reading about this, it made me wonder if the jury perceived there to be more evidence than there was, or maybe some lightweight evidence seemed a lot more significant than it was because so many people were talking about it, when really all they were saying is that they took it from one place and brought it to another. One witness of note was the nurse who cut Tommy's shirt off of him at the hospital. She was a state's witness, but it's what she said on cross-examination that I found interesting. She testified that Tommy's shirt was dry. She did not get any blood on her hands when she cut it off. So had Tommy shot himself right before calling for help, and he was at the hospital within five to ten minutes, how had he stopped bleeding and the blood on his shirt dried? Surely he didn't shoot himself and then sit around waiting to stop bleeding, then waited 15 more minutes for the blood to start drying to then call for help. The dried blood backs up Tommy's story that he was shot, lost consciousness, and called for help when he came to. Another point that was made when the defense cross-examined a state's witness was some of the evidence at the scene that night. Two teeth were found. One of them came from Charlie Mays. He had evidence of very recent tooth loss on his gums, likely when he was hit with that metal crank. But they couldn't figure out who the second tooth belonged to because no one else was missing a tooth that night. To the defense, it was evidence of what Tommy said, that there were other people that night, people who were in a physical fight. The state called the paramedics and the doctor who treated Tommy that night, and again, on cross-examination, the defense once again established that Tommy's wound was not still bleeding, and the doctor even described some other injuries on Tommy consistent with being in a fight. The state does not deny that a fight took place. They said that a fight took place between Tommy and his father-in-law. So you're going to imagine scrapes and bruises on Tommy, very consistent with the state's theory of the crime. But Tommy had a contusion behind his right ear. And that was consistent, according to the doctor, of being dealt a blow from behind. Again, that fits Tommy's story. The doctor was then asked if anyone would be able to shoot themselves in the abdomen and be sure to miss all vital organs. And the doctor said there was no way he knew of for someone to do that with 100% confidence. 
Tommy did serve in the medical corps in the Army, but he was hardly an anatomy expert. From my understanding, he managed supplies. So if you wanted to know what your options were in sizes of gauze, he's probably your guy. But as for how to shoot yourself in the abdomen and avoid all major organs, it seems unlikely he would have this information if a doctor on the stand in court doesn't have this information. So here we are again. We have a state's witness who is also backing up Tommy's version. So next up, we have two witnesses named Barbara who testified. The first was Barbara Woodard. She knew Tommy pretty much her whole life, but they weren't close friends. She testified that she passed the furniture store the night of the murders while doing some last-minute Christmas shopping. She saw a tall, thin, white man with short hair standing in the doorway of the furniture store around 8 p.m. Though Barbara said she was not 100% sure that it was Tommy she saw, the man was consistent with Tommy's description. The race of the man is important here because there were only two white men in the store that night. One was Perry Edwards, who was a 74-year-old man, and the other was Tommy Ziegler in his 30s. They did not resemble each other. Everyone else we know was there that night at some point, whether it was Charlie Mays or Edward Williams or Felton Thomas, they were all black. It's also believed Perry Edwards was already dead at this point. So the only other white man known to be at the store that night was Tommy Ziegler. But according to Tommy, he's unconscious on the floor at this point. Barbara also testified that there were two cars parked out front. One fit the description of Eunice's parents' car, and the other fit the description of the car Tommy was driving that night. And this also fits with the time Edward Williams said Tommy was gone from the house in his car. Barbara Woodard's testimony wasn't a smoking gun, but it wasn't great for the defense either. Now, on cross, Tommy's defense attorney did point out some discrepancies in her testimony from previous statements and her deposition. And she blamed these inconsistencies on nerves, which I think is totally fair, but it's also a major issue when your testimony is being used to bolster up someone's timeline of events. When your testimony is that important, if your nerves are getting to you and you're mixing things up, maybe you're not in a position to be a witness. So the other Barbara was Barbara Spencer. She was a young woman whose back window of her house faced the furniture store. She testified about hearing three cracks that sounded like fireworks. She was waiting on someone who was running late, so she was pretty sure the time was somewhere around 7.20. About 10 to 15 minutes later, Barbara heard an additional six to seven additional sounds that, again, she thought were fireworks. This fits the theory that Tommy killed Eunice and his in-laws first and then lured Charlie Mays into the store and killed him later. But I think if you give some allowances for the time not being exact, then it also fits Tommy's theory of what happened. 
So, okay, we have something a little unusual that happened at the trial next. There was an FBI shoe print expert named Tom Delaney that the state tried to use. They sent Tommy's shoes and the photographs of the bloody footprints to him for analysis. But he did not find what the state hoped he would find, so he was called as a defense witness. The FBI only made Delaney available to testify on a specific day of the trial, which happened to fall pretty much in the middle of the state's case. So the defense went ahead and put him on the stand then because that's when he was available. Delaney testified that of the two bloody shoe prints he analyzed, one was inconclusive and the other was not Tommy. He could exclude Tommy from it. The shoe was the wrong size. So in a trial that had over 100 witnesses called, it would be interesting to hear from the jury if they really processed that this testimony in the middle of the state's case was actually in Tommy's favor. Additionally, the timing of this witness gave the prosecution an advantage they don't usually have. They immediately called up their own witness to refute Delaney's testimony, not just the shoe print testimony, but also then go on to testify about other blood evidence that they said pointed to Tommy Ziegler. And there was an issue with this. I feel like there was an issue with this, could be the title of this episode because I'm going to keep saying it. But there was an issue. The defense never received the written report from this expert. They had no idea what he was going to say, so they had no time to prepare for it. They objected to the testimony because of this, and the state said they couldn't turn over a written report because there wasn't one. Just a spoiler alert, there was one. They found it in 1991 in the state's attorney's files, but we're still in 1976. Judge Paul decided to go ahead and let the expert testify, but gave the defense some time, something like 30 minutes, to sit down with him and go over his findings. So Tommy's attorney had 30 minutes to hear, understand, process, and build a strategy to refute the evidence without the benefit of having his own expert to consult since the FBI guy was gone. But this is what happened, and the expert was allowed to testify. One of the many things he testified about was that he believed Tommy had held his father-in-law Perry in a headlock and that Tommy's shirt had Perry's blood on it. And Tommy's shirt did have blood that was not his on it. It was type A blood. But the truth is that they don't know that this was Perry's blood because this was pre-DNA testing. They only typed the blood. They didn't do additional subtyping to get any more information. So all they knew is this was a man's blood and it was type A. Well, who else had type A blood? Charlie Mays did someone who, in Tommy's version of the story, may have been the person he fought with. So, okay, now we have Thomas Hale testifying. He saw Tommy and Eunice driving together that night. Thomas had a small piece of information, just seeing them driving towards the furniture store together, but he was very important as a witness 
since he was the only one who could put Eunice and Tommy together that night. But there were reasons to doubt Thomas's recollection. For one, the defense presented friends of his who said he had a flexible relationship with the truth. He would tell stories for attention. Additionally, the defense investigator interviewed him prior to the trial, and he identified a picture of the Ziegler's old car as the one he saw the couple in. It was an Oldsmobile that they had sold months earlier. Tommy was driving an Oldsmobile that night, but just not that one. A friend was going out of town for the holidays and didn't think his car would make the trip. Tommy was staying in town, so he decided to just swap cars with his friend and let the friend take the reliable new car. The two Oldsmobiles, the one Tommy was driving that night and the one Thomas Hale identified, didn't actually look very much alike. They were different years, they were different colors. But, I mean, it isn't like one was a Jeep and the other a Ferrari. They were both still Oldsmobiles. So I don't find this identification persuasive in saying that he was lying or that he was telling the truth. The state called some witnesses who then testified that Tommy illegally bought some of the guns that were used in the murders, but these purchases were run through Edward Williams, who was one of the people Tommy's defense pointed to as an alternative suspect. So this, kind of like the car identification, is kind of a wash as far as evidence goes for me. Now, speaking of Edward, he and Felton obviously, of course, testified. We've already covered their timelines and the story, so we're not going to go into what they said over again. I did want to say, though, that Edward made a more convincing witness than Felton did. For one thing, Felton was completely wrong about the car Tommy was driving that day. He said it looked like a Cadillac. Tommy's new car kind of looked like a Cadillac, but he wasn't driving it that day. He was driving his friend's car. Then Felton was asked the route they took to get to the store that he took with Charlie Mays. The directions he gave would have had them driving over a three-foot concrete barrier. So Felton's testimony wasn't rock solid, but Edward had a stronger story, and aside from some minor inconsistencies, They really weren't able to break down his story on cross-examination. At the end of cross, the state didn't even redirect. Edward testified very well for the state. The state again called a witness to testify to Edward running into the KFC restaurant, which bolstered his story, but this witness didn't know what time Edward was there. So, of course, the defense found people who did know the time. Though Edward reported that the time he entered the KFC would have been around 8.40, 8.45, witnesses place Edward arriving at the KFC later, more like 9.20. This was the same time the police were arriving at the store across the street. So these witnesses come with a little bit of a story. 74-year-old Ed Nolan was a big fan of Kentucky Fried Chicken. He went there pretty much every day. On the night of the murders, he got there around 7 p.m. According to Ed Nolan, it was after 9 p.m. when a black man came into the store asking to call the police. 
Ed gave him the number for the police department, and then he looked out the window. He saw his brother, J.D., and sister-in-law, Madeline, walking toward the store. Now, J.D. and Madeline said that they were driving past the KFC when a police car pulled out and almost sideswiped them. This car would have been responding to Tommy's call, which then puts this at 9.20-ish. They then parked and walked across the street to see Ed at the KFC. If we put Ed's statement with J.D. and Madeline's statement, this supports that Edward Williams was at the KFC at 9.20, almost immediately after Tommy called for help, and not 40 minutes earlier like he claimed. The stories did contradict each other slightly in that J.D. said he was in the store when Edward came in, and Ed said J.D. came in after Edward. Ed's testimony, though, never made it into trial. Ed was dying of cancer at the time this happened, so they took his testimony at a preliminary hearing. When Ed died before the trial, this testimony was admissible, except the defense decided not to use it. In his testimony, Ed had used the N-word when he was describing what he saw that night. This case was already about a wealthy white man trying to set up three black men to take a murder rap for him. In the process, he killed one of them and tried to kill another one. Half of the jury was black. The defense, using the testimony of another white man, using a racial slur, was really not going to do them any favors. So they had J.D. testify. But if they had someone else who could say, yes, I witnessed this entire thing as well, that would have gone a long way. But they had to make a choice. Another thing that Ed could have backed up was information on the clothing that Edward Williams was wearing. The clothes he had on in the KFC around 920, according to J.D. and Ed, were not the same clothes he handed over to the police as evidence claiming they were the clothes he wore that night. And there's actually more evidence that these clothes were quite possibly not the same clothes he wore that night. The defense was able to get Edward's clothes turned over to them, and they sent them for testing. They specifically had the pockets tested for gunshot residue because according to Ed and the state, Tommy Ziegler used a gun to kill people. Then he handed it to Edward, who put it immediately into his pocket. That would have transferred something. Well, no gunshot residue was found on the pants. To the defense, this supported the claim that Edward had changed his clothes before he went to the police, and he did not turn over the clothes he had actually been wearing that night. According to the defense theory, he didn't turn them over because there was blood evidence on them because he was one of the actual killers. It's not going to come as a surprise to you that there was an issue with this. The defense initially asked the court to make the state run these tests. Judge Paul denied it. 
So the defense decided to run the tests themselves when they were provided the evidence for inspection. But the state withheld turning over the evidence until a full month after it was supposed to be handed over. So the defense finally got it and sent it to the lab. But testing was delayed in part because of the sheer volume of evidence the defense sent in to get tested. They didn't know what would be important. They didn't know what would show Tommy's innocence. So they sent everything they could. The results did not come in until after the trial. As always, it is hard to say if this would have made much of a difference at trial, but it would have helped chip away at Edward's story. And this idea that Edward changed his clothes that night and purposely gave the police the wrong ones is very suspicious. These tests being pending was one of the reasons they asked for a delay in the trial, and Judge Paul apparently didn't think it was a good enough reason. So the main witness for the defense was Tommy himself. He denied he bought the guns. He denied inviting Charlie to come to the store after hours. And part of the story was that Charlie was buying the TV on credit, which Tommy said they never would have done. Charlie's account was already in arrears. He had to charge him a higher deposit on the flooring he ordered so that he wasn't going to get stuck with this order of flooring that Charlie couldn't pay for. So the idea that he would tell Charlie to come back after hours to get a TV on credit just didn't make sense. Tommy explained that the insurance that he bought was on the advice of his lawyer, which the lawyer did testify to. Tommy then reiterated the story in the timeline he's been telling all along, and since we've already gone through it, I won't bring it up here, except to say for 44 years he's told the same exact story. On cross-examination, the state said straight out that for Tommy to be telling the truth, several people would have to be lying. The people he bought the guns from, Felton Thomas, Edward Williams, and even Charlie Mays' widow, who testified about why Charlie went there that night. But Tommy still stuck to his story. I feel like the defense did a good job pointing out inconsistencies in the various witness stories. For instance, Charlie Mays' van was found in the back of the store, parked outside the six-foot-tall chain-link fence with a locked gate. If he was actually going to the store to buy a heavy 1975 console TV, why didn't he park near the front door so he could carry it out? Instead, he parked his van where it wouldn't be seen quite as easily. Why would he have done that if he was buying a TV? But the prosecutor was right, because for Tommy to be telling the truth, the jury would have to accept that multiple other people were making up their stories. Now, this might not be as impossible as it sounds, because many of the incriminating witnesses against Tommy Ziegler did know each other, though it's not clear if that was obvious to the defense at the time. Since their defense was that these people were in a conspiracy to commit robbery together that then turned into a conspiracy to cover up murders together, proving that they knew each other well enough for this to happen would have gone a long way. And it may have been something they could have established if they had more time to prepare their case. 
So then we have closing statements where they sum up everything we've already talked about four times over today, and the jury took the case for deliberation. This process did not go smoothly at all because why would it? Nothing in this case, start to finish, was easy. There was a juror named Irma Brickle, and she was struggling with the pressures of deliberation. While the jury was initially split six to six, five of the not guilty votes were swayed pretty early on, and Irma was the lone holdout. She felt she was being shouted down when she tried to discuss the evidence in more depth or express her doubts. She asked to speak to the judge about it, but Judge Paul decided it was nothing more than usual jury disagreements. At some point, the judge called Irma's doctor and had him send over a Valium for her. After she had taken it, another juror said she looked like she was under the influence, and he even expected that there was going to be a mistrial here. Instead, Irma sat in her chair. She pushed back a little bit, saying that she just couldn't understand how Tommy killed Eunice. So another juror picked up the unloaded evidence gun, put it to the back of Irma's head, pulled the trigger, and said, essentially, that's how he did it. This account of what happened isn't coming from Irma. This is according to the juror who did this to her, as reported by the Tampa Bay Times. With the effects of this sedative in full force, Irma had no argument left in her. They took a vote, and it was 12-0 in favor of conviction on all counts after more than 17 hours of deliberation. After conviction, they moved to the penalty phase where the jury decided between life and death. The jury ended up recommending a sentence of life in prison. So, of course, Judge Maurice Paul overrode them and sentenced Tommy to death instead. This was permitted under Florida law at the time. It is no longer permitted due to more recent court decisions saying that they can't do this. A judge can only impose the death sentence if the jury recommends it by at least a 10 to 2 vote. While this could be new grounds for resentencing for some inmates, Tommy ended up having his death sentence overturned in 1988 for another reason. At the sentencing hearing, Judge Paul had refused to allow Tommy's defense team to present most of their witnesses. And by most, he refused 12 of the 14 witnesses. Only two people were allowed to speak on Tommy's behalf. An appellate court found this to be unfair, and Tommy was resentenced, but the new judge again sentenced him to death. As a death penalty case, there were a lot of appeals, but Tommy is still on death row and has been for 44 years, so obviously none of these have worked. His scheduled execution dates have been stayed, and a lot of information has come out since his conviction to cast even more doubt on his guilt, but none of it has led to a successful appeal. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, but 
We have basically two types of appeals. We have the direct appeal, which relates to trial errors. And then we have post-conviction appeals, which relates to new evidence, new information. After Tommy lost his direct appeal, he filed a post-conviction appeal claiming that Judge Paul was biased against him. Of course, some of that information was known at the time of the trial and was included in his direct appeal, but one part was not. Sheriff Lee McEachern, who was a former Orange County deputy, signed a sworn statement saying that he was in a meeting with Judge Paul, the prosecutor Bob Egan, and one of the investigators when Judge Paul said something to the prosecutor to the effect of, Bob, you get me one first-degree murder conviction and I'll fry the SOB. This showed that Paul was not only biased against Tommy, but he already decided the sentence prior to hearing the evidence of guilt. Judge Paul, Bob Egan, and the investigator in this conversation all denied it happened, and the judge who was providing over the post-conviction relief hearing decided to believe them over McEachern. Another notable thing that made it into a post-conviction relief challenge were two witnesses, Ken and Linda Roach. They told the police that they drove by the store the night of the murders and heard a shot. They actually thought they blew a tire. A few seconds later, they heard multiple shots that they thought might be fireworks. The most important part of their account was that they said the shots were too close together to have come from a single shooter. So not only does this contradict the official theory of the case, they went on to say they saw four cars out front when the state said that the only two cars that should have been there was the one Tommy was driving and then Perry and Virginia Edwards' car. The Roaches also said they saw a dark-skinned man standing outside. They had called the police and tried to report this, but they were told they would not be needed. It wasn't until 1979 that the defense learned about their tip and learned about them calling the police. So this made it into a 1986 post-conviction relief process. But the Roaches and every other witness who has come forward since the trial has not led to a successful appeal. In the 1990s, Tommy's appellate team turned toward DNA as their solution. The state's theory was that Tommy had fought with his father-in-law, had him in a headlock, and got his type A blood on his shirt. But Tommy insisted that he had fought with an unknown assailant who may have been Charlie Mays, who also had type A blood. So in 1995, Tommy asked the court to test it, test everything, prove the blood was Perry's. But with appeals, timing matters. You have to raise the issue at the earliest possible time. If you don't, you cannot do it later. So Tommy had an earlier appeal and did not include the possibility of DNA testing even though it was available at the time of that appeal. So this was initially denied because it was a procedural issue. Tommy's clothing isn't the only thing they want tested. Another piece of evidence that would be great to know the DNA results on would be the stray tooth that didn't belong to anyone known to be at the scene that night. Unfortunately, this tooth has been lost along with some fingerprint cards. 
And the cards weren't exactly lost. They were actually intentionally destroyed by the FBI analyst who had them. She couldn't find any prints that specifically implicated anyone in the crime. But why were these not given to the defense or at least retained pending appeals versus being destroyed? I don't know. That's a big question mark in this case. In 2001, Tommy used the DNA testing argument again in a clemency appeal, and it worked this time. There was some testing done. And the tests on Tommy's shirt backed up what he said. The blood was not Perry Edwards. It belonged to Charlie Mays. This is consistent with Tommy's story and inconsistent with the state theory, as presented at trial. Additionally, Perry's blood was found on Charlie's clothes and shoes, even though the state's theory was that Tommy killed him as he entered the showroom after Perry was already dead 15 feet away. Based on the layout, Charlie wouldn't have even walked near where Perry was. Using this information, they appealed again, but here's the thing with this DNA evidence. While it is consistent with Tommy's story, it doesn't necessarily exclude him as a suspect. If the state had this information at trial, they would have just altered their theory of the crime. Maybe, say, Charlie walked in and saw Perry's body, so he ran to him to help him. That's how he got the blood on him. Then he either tried to attack Tommy or flee the store, and they got in the fight, which is how Charlie's blood got on Tommy's shirt. Then Charlie was shot. There's still a pretty big hole in the theory because how did Tommy attack his father-in-law and not get any of his blood on him? But the state could have adapted their theory to more fit the evidence. The other thing is they did not DNA test the entire shirt. DNA tests are very expensive for even small amounts, so they basically had spot-tested the shirt. It's possible that small amounts of Perry's blood was on the shirt, just not where they tested. In April 2005, the court ruled that even if this new evidence was available at trial, Tommy probably still would have been convicted. But these DNA results did put Tommy's case into the spotlight, and he has gotten a lot more support in the last two decades since this came out. One of these people supporting him is a private investigator named Lynn Marie Cardi. She is a certified powerhouse of a human being. She decided to find out the truth, and she has found a ton of stuff that hasn't come out before, and it took a lot of digging and a lot of following up on leads for her to find this. One of the most notable things she found out was Robert Foster, Remember how Felton Thomas was misidentified as Robert Foster? Well, Charlie Mays did know a Robert Foster. And this Robert Foster had a criminal record that included robbing a furniture store before. He matched the description of a man who attempted to hold up the gas station across the street from the Ziegler Furniture Store on the night of the murders, putting him in the vicinity, possibly. And Lynn Marie found a photograph from the newspaper from the night of the murders that showed a man who looks like Robert Foster standing in the crowd outside the furniture store that night, 
alongside Charlie's widow. Was Robert Foster there and not Felton Thomas, and somehow Felton took over the story? Was this a typo because they were both there and the officer had the wrong person in his head when he wrote it up, but they don't want to introduce Robert Foster because his past would make it look like he was involved in a robbery? It just seems really odd to me that there's a supposed typo and it turns out to be someone Charlie Mays knew. If this was completely unrelated to the crime, that's an incredible coincidence. Another thing Lynn Marie Cardi uncovered was a tip that was called in on January 6, 1976, about two weeks after the murders. This supports a new theory of the crime that has emerged. This tip was that a white man who was not Tommy Ziegler had set up the murders. The new theory is that this white man was someone who had a lot to gain from the murders and started the rumor that Eunice was leaving Tommy, Eunice's brother, Perry Jr. With his parents and sister dead, Perry Jr. inherited everything, including a large amount of valuable land. This wasn't the only time Perry Jr. was called in as a tip. Someone else called it in many years later. And then Perry Jr.'s granddaughter came forward and said that Perry's wife, her grandmother, had told her that Perry had gone to Winter Gardens the night of the murders, which could possibly make him the man the witness saw in the doorway because he and Tommy more or less resembled each other. And this also fits with Edward Williams' initial statement to the police. While his story eventually became that Tommy pointed the gun at him, at some point while he was telling this story early on, he referred to the person who tried to shoot him as a white man. He knew Tommy Ziegler since Tommy was a child. Why would he call someone he knew that long a white man rather than by his name? But these questions and many more remain unanswered. I would be here all day if I went through everything that's come out in the last several years. This information is on a website called TommyZigglerIsInnocent.com, which I will, if I remember, link in the show notes. I don't generally use advocacy websites as a source by themselves, but they are a very good place to go to get primary sources. They will upload the affidavits and search warrants or whatever documents, public records they have are often uploaded on these websites. So I do use them for primary sources, but I do want to make it clear that if I used TommyZigglerIsInnocent.com as a source itself, obviously my episode is going to sway one way and not be one of the more middle-of-the-road presentations like I like to give in these cases. But there are new witnesses who have come out, old witnesses who have changed their stories, names that showed up on tips are finally being followed up on, and, of course, the DNA tests. And while a lot of this may sway public opinion, it has yet to make a difference in the courts. So as I wrap this up, and I think about the things that puzzle me the most, here are my top questions I have. If Tommy Ziegler set this up, why did he make plans to drive to a party with the police chief when all of this was supposed to be going down? Don Ficke looked for him three times that night, 
in a small stretch of the city between his house, the party, the Ziegler house, the store, yet he didn't see him one time in spite of Tommy supposedly driving back and forth from the store repeatedly. That doesn't make sense. Speaking of Don Ficky, what's the deal with his timeline? He drove to the house between 8 and 8.10, then at 8.35, then at 8.45. The car Tommy was driving, if we follow either Tommy or Edward's stories, should have been there at least the last two times because Edward drove Tommy to the store. But according to Don Ficky, it was not there until the 8.45 time. It wasn't there at the 8.35 time. So if that's true, where was the car? Are Tommy and Edward both lying about the timeline? Is Don lying? Are people mistaken? All three of them have different stories. So two people are either lying or mistaken, and the question is which two? I don't think it's a surprise that my next question is also about the timeline. Edward and Felton put their scheduled meeting times with Tommy at 7.30, but in two different places, five to ten minutes apart. Why would Tommy arrange to meet both of them at the same exact time? Another question is, why did Tommy Ziegler bother buying untraceable guns in advance and then just use his own guns anyway? Why did he have Charlie and Felton fire these guns to get their fingerprints on them and then just wipe them clean after? And let's talk about Tommy's gunshot wound. It was supposedly self-inflicted, but it wasn't a contact shot. How did Tommy shoot himself at a distance? And then why did the robbers leave him with one gunshot wound to the abdomen when they made sure to finish everyone else off? There is a tip that came in that had to do with they left him alive on purpose so that he'd bring shame on the family over having killed everybody. But how did they know that's how it was going to go down? That theory of why they left him alive doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Plus, they didn't know that he would live. If Tommy doesn't know how to avoid vital organs, neither do a bunch of robbers. So look, every case is going to have holes. Every theory is going to have something that doesn't make sense. But how can we have holes this big in a death penalty case? The state continues to block attempts at additional DNA testing, continuing to argue that it would make no difference because it would just fit a different plausible theory of the crime. And then in 2019, even their own conviction integrity unit suggested to the state's attorney that they grant Tommy Ziegler's most recent request for additional DNA testing, but it was denied. News came out very recently that Tommy Ziegler, now 75 years old, contracted COVID-19 while in prison. He was transported from his cell on August 29th, 2020, after struggling to breathe. He spent some time on a ventilator, but it was announced on September 15th that he had survived and he was back in his cell trying to recover. Those who believe in his innocence plan to continue to clear his name as long as he sits on death row. Tommy himself has faith that at some point, the truth will come out. (laughs) 